Caleb is one. None, none of you have ever been chosen for something and glad for it. Regis, two. All right, we're making progress. Oh, I see a few more hands in the back. When I say chosen, it doesn't have to be complicated. I just mean you got that job you wanted. Somebody who owns a business comes to you and says, hey, you're a hard worker. Hey, you're pretty smart. I'd like to hire you. I'd like you to work. You know, that feels really good, right? Or if you play sports and you're at the park with your friends and somebody says, he's got to be on my team and they pick you first. It's that great feeling. Or you get the role in the school play, the lead actor, lead actress. You get that lead part. It feels really, really Good. Even as simple as somebody says, I'd like you to go to the dance with me, or I'm having a birthday party, I want you to come. Lars is not inviting anyone, apparently. But we're happy. You didn't even tell us. You didn't even tell us. But we're not going to hold it against you. We're not going to hold it against you. But for the rest of us, you get these invitations. It feels really good when somebody chooses you. Well, flip it around. How, does, how do you pick your friends? Kind of while we're talking about this nature of relationships, how do you pick your friends? How does that kind of unfold? You don't have to think through it too much, but I bring this up because sometimes people are choosing us, sometimes we're choosing people, and in the same way, God at times is graciously choosing us. He's graciously interacting with us, navigating relationships, and you can turn to Luke 42. I'm sorry, Luke 4, 42. All right, so Luke chapter 4, verse 42, and we'll go into chapter 5 as well. And I was saying before, just a way to think about how does God build relationships? How does God interact with people? We see this unfold in an interesting way in Luke chapter 4 and 5 that has to do with crowds of people and has to do with individuals both. So let's read verse 42 of chapter 4 all the way to verse 11 of chapter 5. When day came, Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. So he kept on preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish, and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear, from now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. What Luke's done in this chapter is, just to begin helping us get our head around it, is a little bit like a camera with a zoom lens. 
He starts out pretty far back from the group of people and the whole scene. He, he's, there, there's no zoom in a sense. He's just looking at the whole scene with this crowd of people who are listening to the word of God. That's verses 42 to 44. But steadily, he starts to zoom in. But in these first verses, we just read of Christ and crowds. We read of Christ at a distance. It's a new day and crowds are searching for him. And when they find him, he reveals his purpose and he keeps moving forward. It's not very specific or very detailed, but we get the purpose. We get the picture. Take note, we see people listening to the word of God. I brought this up last week. Just like last week, Jesus is upholding this practice of listening to God. Last week in Matthew 23, he said, hey, they're seated in the seat of Moses. That was the technical term in Matthew, which is mainly written for a Jewish audience. So they'd understand like this is the seat of Moses in a synagogue. These people are meant to be listened to. So Jesus is upholding that again. And Luke says they are pressing around Jesus and listening to the word of God. This is an ancient and a necessary practice in the spiritual life. You might remember Eric doing sermons earlier this year. He used a phrase, the ancient way. He was leading us through sermons, talking about the ancient way, the ancient way, the ancient way. And each week he talked about a different aspect of the Christian life that he connected to the ancient way. And what it is is that people who know God or people who are seeking God on some level, best they can, they listen to a God who speaks. It's not always easy. It's not always familiar. It's not always accepted but they listen to a God who speaks. It's at the center of our faith. And there's a temptation to do the opposite. Satan is in the garden, and you know the story. He presents an alternative voice. He understands the basic reality of life. God speaks, and we listen, and we speak, and he listens. And Satan tries to sneak into that and offer an alternative form of knowledge, another way of seeing life. He imitated God. But in this case, people are gathered around Christ because they know we're hearing from God. This is God speaking to us in Christ, and that's vital. These people are saying, we need that. We need to listen. We need to hear. We need to talk. We need him to listen. You'll see this connection again and again. But even so, a strange thing is going on. And to see it, Luke does another zoom with our focus. He zooms in closer in verses 1 to 3. The crowd's pressing around, but Jesus says, I got to preach to other people. And he turns away from the crowd and starts to focus. And the zoom goes in a little bit on these fishermen. Before they didn't even tell us like city or where or place or anything. Now it says the lake of Gennesaret. He's on the shore. There's certain fishermen. There's boats. He's connected into this specific place. Christ is getting particular. And at first, honestly, it was hard for me to see how does all of this connect? How does... Christ and fishermen and crowds connect. Like Luke, even though I'm, I'm kind of getting it out there as like a zoom idea, zooming in and out. I, at first I was just like, how, how does all this connect? And I kept reading and reading and reading. And then I saw it. The crowds are trying to keep Jesus. They're trying to say, Jesus, we need you to stay in a certain place. Jesus, we need you to just keep being with us. Just keep doing what you're doing, but stay. We want to keep you here. We don't want you to leave. And he says, I must go. I, I'm here to preach to other places. I must go. They're trying to keep Jesus, but he slips away. And in verses 1 to 3, they, they're, they're trying to seize him. They're, they're pressing him. They're surrounding him. They're, they, they're just saying, stay here. And they've almost got him surrounded. But several verses later, 
Luke finishes the other end of this and paints a brilliant picture for us, this amazing, helpful image that I finally got my head around. He, Christ leaves behind the synagogues and he goes to a lake shore. And it's there that he finds these fishermen. They have empty nets. They have empty boats. And I think they probably feel like failures. I mean, if you're a fisherman who knows what you're doing, which they were, then you'd catch fish. You'd have something to show for your labor. An empty boat, an empty net means not just a failed purpose, but it also means empty bellies. There's no grocery store to go to. There's no backup plan. This was the plan. And they don't even have a total purpose because they're fishermen without fish. That's the, the picture there that's painted for us. Just talking about their jobs, just talking about their daily life. They're fishermen without fish. They've lost their purpose. They have empty bellies. But what they don't realize is Christ has turned his back on the crowds that are trying to keep him so that he can look at these fishermen with empty boats and empty lives. And he directs them into an amazing miracle. Verse 6 says, They enclosed a great quantity of fish until their nets could have burst. Christ escaped a crowd so he could set up a miracle of these fishermen encircling, enclosing, surrounding, keeping something tremendous, which they couldn't do by themselves. They were already empty until Christ showed up. That helped me. I'm jumping ahead in some ways, but it helped me so much to realize that Luke is kind of setting up these alternatives, a crowd that's hungry and won't let Jesus go, and a Jesus who won't stop seeking somebody else to fill up their lives with a miracle that they couldn't give themselves. See, these crowds in chapter 4 and 5 are all getting something. They're getting healing. They're getting deliverance. They're getting great teaching. They're hearing from God. Of course, they don't want him to go away. I'm not blaming them. Of course, they don't want Jesus to leave. But in a way, these crowds are pushing Jesus out. And Peter and the other fishermen have nothing. Something that you might know or might not is that Peter, James, John, these fishermen, they'd already done some ministry with Jesus by this point. If you read other Gospels and you set them up in order, Jesus, Jesus had already been spending time with these fishermen. They'd, he'd already been teaching them a little bit. He'd already been including them in his work. But they had gone back to fishing. And he, in his kind of traveling ministry, as he said, I must go to other cities. So he had kind of let them go back to fishing. And he went on and did some other things. But he's back. And interestingly, for guys who knew Jesus and had been part of his mission before, they're not participating. <laughs> he's traveling around without them. And they're not seeking him. They didn't say, hey, Jesus is back. He's only a few miles away. Let's leave the boats and go back with him. No, they're fishing. They're fishing and fishing, and that's just what they're doing. They don't even seem to be interested in Jesus. They're not the ones who are pressing Jesus and keeping Jesus and surrounding Jesus and seeking Jesus. They don't wake up in the morning saying, where is Jesus? They're out fishing. I think it's really interesting. But, but Jesus comes to him, finds Simon's boat or Peter's boat, same person, Finds his boat and he says, Peter, put out a little from land. Peter, put out your nets. He's getting Peter alone so that he can do something Peter doesn't realize yet. Peter gets put out. Now, it's a funny word in English, right? We know that word, it's like, gets put out. But it stood out to me in my particular Bible translation. I don't know what yours says, but mine had that word put out. And I was like, oh, getting put out. I don't like getting put out. But Peter gets put out. Put out a little bit from the land. Put out your nets. Jesus is putting Peter out away from the crowds. He's moving him away with a motive to get the attention of these few fishermen. They're not coming to him, but he's coming to them. Do you ever feel like life is putting you out? Just kind of getting you out of joint, making you uncomfortable, not going the way you wanted. 
Like, like you're getting pushed, sort of. We don't like to get pushed as people, really. But you feel like life sometimes pushes you. It forces you into uncomfortable, disruptive situations. There's opportunity in that discomfort for Peter because Jesus is going to speak to him. Luke, as a whole, in his whole book, he's trying to reveal Christ as the Savior. Christ as someone who put on flesh and came to live among these people to make a difference, to be the Son of Man who came to seek and save those who were lost. We see that impulse in Christ. The crowds are trying to keep him from going away, but Jesus says, I must preach. The crowds try to press around Jesus and restrict his freedom to walk and travel, but he says, I was sent for a purpose. And it creates a tension because Jesus is drawing a crowd of people who are amazed by what he's doing, and he's eventually creating space. He's eventually kind of pushing them away. He's drawing this crowd, but he's actually trying to create a global community that would last for all of time with all kinds of people groups and all kinds of situations and those near to him and far from him and those who'd worship in different ways and all kinds of stuff. And he says, I am going to do something beyond people's wildest imaginations. I'm withdrawing from the crowd and I'm moving in Peter's direction. This boat is getting pushed out because Christ is going to multiply himself by investing himself in a few people. He's going to give them his knowledge. He's going to give them of his spirit. He's going to give them his identity. And he loves the crowds. He loves them. He's been preaching to them. He's been serving to them. But it's to Peter, it's to these fishermen, these few people that Jesus says, I want to be your friend. Let down your nets. And we don't know why Peter responded as he did, saying, go away from me. We're going to come back to that. But something challenged him. Something made him say, I, I feel like I, I kind of get the sense that Jesus is about to raise the stakes on me. Jesus is about to make me really uncomfortable. And something about Peter resisted that. Notice this, that even though Christ relaxed his connection to the crowds, he didn't abandon his connection. And I just want to quickly hit some notes in scripture so we don't think that Jesus is against big groups or Jesus is against crowds because not all of us probably feel like we're going to do what Peter did and leave our, boat, leave our boats, leave our nets, and just go follow him. Chapter 5 continues to talk about crowds. Chapter 6 with Luke talks about synagogues, and it talks about public gatherings and bigger scale ministry that Jesus did. Chapter 7 talks about large crowds. Jesus didn't just move into a monastery and say, I've got this really small little niche type group of people, and we're comfortable, and we're just, we're in the monastery, the walls are up, the doors are closed, we're done with the crowds. But he is forming a group of friends, a core team of people. He says, there are crowds, there are Pharisees, there are scribes, there are healthy, there are sick. There's all these villages that I've gone around and spent time with. But by chapter 8, Christ has 12 disciples along with a core group of women, and they are all on mission with Jesus, following him around, going where he goes, part of what he's doing. Christ still stays somewhat connected to the crowd, but he's also created a difference between the group that's following him and the crowd. His priority is people, and he ultimately prioritizes what he calls fishers of men. He's deeply engaging this smaller number of people to form a friendship with them for the right reason. And what is the right reason? Well, it's to surrender to his disruptive leadership and have a hand in his mission. Look at verse 5. Simon Peter, he knows a thing or two about fishing. And in verse 5, he says, Master, we worked hard all night, and we caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. Of course, I don't know how Peter sounded when he said that, but 
and I haven't like worked through the night in a while. Maybe some of you have recently or been up all night or whatever, but like being up all night at the end of, even if you work days for the record, like just imagine yourself at the end of the shift, you know, or for those of you who like go to bed early, but you have people in your life who are like, you know, night owls, like imagine that moment when the night owl is getting more energy and you're getting less or those morning people, you know, who are like, boing, it's great to see you, you know, and some of you are like, it's not great to see you. It's like that intersection right there. I think that's where Peter was when he says, Master, we worked hard all night. Worked hard all night. Wind, waves. It's not like air conditioning, you know, <laughs> like worked hard all night. No 5G service. We caught nothing, but I'll do as you say and let down the nets. Peter says, I'll surrender to your disruptive leadership. I'll have a hand in your mission. We've got some books upstairs by an author named Warren Wearsby. Warren Wearsby is a Bible teacher. You might have heard his name. He asked a good question at this moment. Why would a carpenter listen to fishermen and have this conversation? And, and, and more than that, like, why would a fisherman listen to a carpenter who kind of started being a part-time carpenter or something and, like, became a traveling rabbi? Like, if we just think vocationally for a second, it doesn't make a lot of sense to be saying, hey, put out the boat into deep water. We've been fishing all night. Who is the carpenter turned traveling rabbi that's, you know, like, what is he doing here? It'd be like if I came to your job and said, hi, I used to be a writer, and then I became a pastor, and I'm here to give advice on plumbing. I'd like to have a conversation about your irrigation system. Your irrigation system's not working as well as it could be. Could I tell you a thing? You know, no. Like, you're not, you're like, don't touch my lawnmower, don't touch my car, don't come in my house, leave the irrigation. No, we don't do this. We don't do this. So why would Peter listen to Christ? I think part of the reason Wearsby goes on to say it's because Peter was sitting in the boat. He might not have come to Jesus, but Jesus came to him, got in his boat, said, put out. Now Peter's a captive audience. He's hearing Jesus. He's in the boat. His faith is growing. He's saying, I have to listen. He already had faith in Christ. He called him master. He knew that his word was truth, and his faith came with action. So he said, I'm going to put the boat out in deep water. I'm going to let down the nets. Wearsby said something that's true about fishermen like this. It's not a recreational hobby for these guys. Fishing takes daring and courage and determination like guys who work hard all night. Guys who work hard all night. It takes a great deal of faith. It's probably the third time that this group has gone out on mission with Jesus and now he's back again. And it seems like it's getting more intense for them at this point. Something's coming up because Peter, again, in verse 8, he gets to the point where he says, Go away from me, Lord. Again, he's calling him Lord, but he's saying, go away from me. They've faced the reality of their sin. They get to verse 11. They say, we'll leave our nets. We'll leave our boats. We're going to follow you. They recognize he's God and he's worthy of following because the crowds get something. But this Jesus came to us and we're going to get somewhere. Jesus' actions in Luke focus our attention away from the crowds and focus him on this catch of fish that he orchestrates. The crowds are trying to enclose Jesus, but Jesus says, let me enclose something for these fishermen who are empty and have nothing. Let me do something for them. I'm going to disrupt their lives, but they're going to have a hand in my mission. I mention this for two encouragements to you. None of us are going to end up in a boat, put out deep water, have Jesus show up like that. Probably not going to replay Luke 4 and 5, but I want to give you two encouragements. One, recognize that God will lead you gradually. He may suddenly, and sometimes does suddenly, sort of show up. And this passage can be preached as if this all-or-nothing sudden breaking in. 
but it really encouraged me that God leads us gradually. It's the, not Peter's first time with Christ. He calls you into service, but it seems like he opens up deeper and wider and more significant opportunities over time. Peter's often remembered as this really courageous guy who like throws off his clothes and like jumps in the water when he realizes it's Jesus or opens his mouth and is like, you are the Lord. You know, he's famous in scripture kind of for these bold, faithful, sort of outspoken comments. But even the most courageous of us will find some limits to the ministry that we do. Even the most courageous of us will say, there's a kind of a limit. I can't, I don't think I can do much more than that. And Jesus understands that he leads gradually. Number two, no ministry that you do will be permanent. These disciples had already followed Christ quite a bit. They'd done things with him before, and that had come to an end, and they'd gone back to fishing. Here Jesus is again. Time for another chapter of ministry with Jesus, it seems. And this time they would follow him longer and farther and more intensely. But even after his crucifixion, if you start with Luke 5 and imagine them serving and following and learning and growing and doing miracles and all these other things that happened in the rest of Luke, Christ gets crucified. What do the disciples do? They go back to fishing. That's right. They go back to fishing. There's cycles. There's chapters. There's things they do for the Lord, and then they go back to fishing. There's chapters. There's seasons. And that's the observation, but it's an opportunity because don't say no to a ministry because you can't commit for a lifetime. Don't say no to something because, well, I don't know if I can do it forever. I don't know if it's going to last. I don't know if I should do it. Maybe, you know. We can hear something, and I did in my life at least, hear something like verse 11, they left their nets and they followed him. And it makes every Sunday morning feel like a cliffhanger. (laughs) Am I going to leave my nets and follow him? Well, maybe. But maybe I could also lower the pressure on myself and say, it's not quite as dramatic as it seems. They certainly followed him. But I think their obedience and faith had seasons. At this church, in your neighborhood, you can help out in a variety of ways, and you can do it for a season. You can work with children. You can host a Bible study. You can share the gospel with your neighbors. You can do family altar on Monday nights. You can pray with a few people. You can uh, teach English to people who don't know it if you want to. There's all these things you can do. Don't say no to things because you think it has to be a lifetime commitment. Jesus finds these people in their ordinary lives, and he engages them right there. He encounters them in ordinary ways. At some point, we have to shift from the sort of theological, biblical world that we think about 2,000 years ago. We sort of have to shift away because Monday's coming. And what does this mean for us on Mondays? The good news of Jesus is rooted in the fact that he comes to people in the ordinary moments of their lives. This was super ordinary for Peter and James and John. They were fishermen. Like, this is what they did. They lived by the water. It had a name. They went fishing. They had family. They had friends. They lived their life. You might, be launch, you might be washing your laundry this week and hear Jesus saying something to you, something to do, something to say. You might be doing homework or cleaning the bathroom, mowing the grass, meeting with your boss, supervising your employees, answering the phone, writing emails, whatever you do, scrolling Facebook, whatever you do, Chances are that Jesus can meet you in the middle of it because he's turned his back on some other opportunities or situations to briefly give you his time and his interest and invite you into his mission. It's disruptive, but you can have a hand in his mission. And he knows the right way to do it. He knows that you can be paying attention for him 
because he's looking for you at different ways and times. If he sees you at work, he's extending you a hand, saying, have a hand in my mission. Yes, it's a little disruptive, but have a hand in my mission. Could be the third, fourth, fifth, 21st time. It doesn't matter. We see with Peter that because he surrendered to Christ's disruptive leadership, he gets this tremendous haul of fish. Same boat, same water, same nets. Unbelievable miracle. And he falls at Jesus' feet and he proclaims his sin before Christ as the God of his fathers, the Lord God Almighty. And then Jesus says, you've received a new purpose in life. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Sometimes Christ's kingdom has been described to me as an upside down kingdom. I don't know if you've heard that before. Upside down, things are not like the way they were. Everything seems flipped upside down. Why would Christ waste the talents of trained fishermen who already have boats, nets, and all the skills that go into it to go do something that they're terrible at and have very little experience with? Well, I mean, he is a carpenter who felt like God was calling him to be a traveling rabbi, so maybe he's just into getting outside the box and saying, let's get really creative. But I think it actually comes down to this. He's filled with the Holy Spirit, and he looks at Peter, James, and John, and these others, and he says, they're doing good things, but they're not fulfilling my ultimate will. They're doing good things, but I have better things for them. I have other things for them. I need a few years from them to spend with me to get part of something that I want to do. They're good. They're doing my will in certain regards. They're working. They're obeying the religion that they were taught. They're raising their families. They're doing all these things right. But God has something more, Christ realizes. So he becomes friends with them so they can be part of preaching about the kingdom of God, so they can be part of people coming back to God through the life and death and resurrection of Christ. In chapter 5, he shifts, Jesus shifts from doing the work by himself to doing it with these people. He's making friends for the right reasons. That reason is people who surrender to his disruptive leadership and have a hand in his mission. And I want to be fair while we talk about his mission. I want to be fair to you that when we're talking about work, working seems to be at the core of the Christian faith. I said earlier that reading the word of God or listening to God is at the core of the Christian faith, and that's true. But here these people are that Jesus picks out. And honestly, Christ had withdrawn from crowds who seemed to want him to just stay and just keep teaching and just keep talking and just keep informing. and just He seemed to withdraw from that and say, here are some humble, hardworking fishermen who will call me master. And when I say put out the boat, they'll put out the boat. And when I say put down the nets, they'll put down the nets. And they might not like it. They might say, look, master, we worked hard all night. Like there's some, there's some interaction going on there. They're not robots. But at the end of the day, he said, put them out. So we'll put them out. Let's see what happens. It's not like the crowds who listen but don't live. Peter, James, John, they listen and they do the word. They let down their nets. Because they've got enough faith and enough humility to recognize God's among us. They see that God has shown up and he's done something wonderful and he's done something incredible and he's done something personal. And instead of that God going away from them, they realize he's saying, I like you. I want to spend time with you. I'm coming to you. Not I like you like in a totally modern sort of way, but, but this Christ who's saying, I want to spend more time with you, not just hanging out at the movies or something, but I want to spend more time with you I want to take you on a journey that will transform you and transform the work of your life and transform your character by redirecting you into my mission. Christ doesn't say, hey, this has been great. Wasn't that awesome? Bunch of fish, bulging nets, sinking boats. Been awesome. Keep being a fisherman. Way to go. See you later. 
Thanks for letting me do something. And Christ also doesn't say, let's get you measured for some tassels. You remember last week, right? The tassels. Christ isn't like, hey, you guys just earned longer tassels. Way to go, you know? And he doesn't say, let's get you measured for a phylactery. Let's get this giant Bible. How big is your forehead? How big is, you know? He doesn't say that stuff. He's not into that. He's looking for people who understand him and his disruptive leadership and say, I'll have a hand in your mission. I'll do it even if I'm tired, even if I don't understand, even if I think I probably kind of know better, even if, and this is the really tough part, even when Peter gets to the point where he's like, away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man, he'll do it anyway. It's those people that Christ embraces. It's those people that Christ deepens his relationship with. Christ walks alongside those people. He transforms their lives. He says, here, be part of my mission. Be part of my life. The world doesn't need more religious authorities, more Pharisees, more scribes, more phylacteries. The world, Christ says, needs people who know me and who surrender to me. It all sounds great until verse 8. I've mentioned it a couple of times, but all of this sounds so good and so motivating. And then verse 8, Peter throws a wrench in the works. He's like, look at him. Look at what he says. Verse 8, he falls down to Jesus' feet. Not bad. Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I did not see this coming. The divine initiative has screeched to a stunning halt. It's all falling apart. The wheels are coming off. This whole thing is getting bad because Christ has focused on Peter. He's amazed Peter. Peter has called him master. Like everything feels good. And then suddenly Peter says, get away from me, Lord. Has Jesus wasted all his time? Was it a giant failure to turn his back on the crowds and focus and put out the nets and all the rest of that? This is like a leaky bounce house. You know, I talked about birthday parties earlier. It's like that bounce house that like can't hold the air and it's like, like you're watching it slowly get, you know, you can hear the kids inside playing, but like the walls are getting closer to them. And, you know, there's some sort of warning, I'm sure, that's like how long do you leave the kids in the bounce house while the air is like going out of it, you know, and like, how do you get them? You know, I don't know the answer to these things. I can't even remember to pray for them when they need to go upstairs. But here they are watching the, this beautiful sort of fun bounce house of divine mission sort of starting to lose the air. The family car is on the road trip. The tire goes flat, and it's like, do you keep going? You know, you know, smoke's coming out from under the hood. You're like, oh, man, maybe if I go a little faster, the smoke will dissipate. That doesn't fix it. That doesn't fix it. Has Jesus asked too much of Peter? Has he gone just a step too far with Peter? Just too much this one time, Jesus. Just too much with Peter. Oh, I don't know. What are your moments in life? What are the situations when you tell God no? When you're like, that's it. I've had enough. Maybe you don't say it with your lips, but the core of your being, this instinct of your heart is just like, no, no. Like you don't even realize it's coming, but Jesus is interacting with you or something in life's happening, and your internal response is just like, no. Just no, like your body tenses up, your language, your facial expression, whatever. You're just like, no, no. Peter's like, look, look, I'll call you Lord, but I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I don't want you around. I don't want your mission away from me, Lord. It's an instinctive human response, by the way, to say, get away from me, God. 
Shortly after leaving Egypt, you know the Hebrew people were slaves in Egypt. Shortly after leaving Egypt, they're out in the wilderness. There's a mountain. It's a familiar enough story. But in short, God is active in their life. And up on this mountain, he's meeting with Moses. There's thunder. There's lightning. God is speaking from heaven. The people hear it. They're not up on the mountain with Moses. But they they get this sense that God is present. And Exodus 20 says, When all the people witnessed the thunder and lightning, the sounding of the ram's horn and the mountain enveloped in smoke, they trembled and stood at a distance. They said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us or we will die. Do you know what Moses said to them right after that? Do not be afraid. Do you know what Jesus said to Peter? Do not fear. Same message. God is saying, I am capable of amazing things. I do amazing things. I'm trying to generate my con- your confidence in me. I'm trying to build that up in you. And you're going to get afraid. And I think he wants to do what scares us, and he knows it, so he seeks to overcome our fear. What have been your moments in life when you told God No. If you haven't actually said no to God, and that sounds too precise, it just doesn't really fit your situation, I would imagine there are still things in your life that you say, no, 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 I have a line there, and we just don't do that. I, I, I just, I don't do that. Whatever that is, we've all got these things that we just wouldn't do, and you might not really recognize God's active in those, but we've all got our no's. We've all got our things, and I'll be honest, one of mine is I crave security. I like stability. Just order, structure. I talked earlier about, you know, that I can be a little rigid sometimes. I like to feel like I have all my ducks in a row. And God's working on my nose with his disruptive leadership to say, if you won't stop trying to be so structured, you're not going to have a hand in my mission all the time. You're going to miss out on something because I'm disrupting you. You want security. You want stability. I will take care of the security part, but I'm going to disrupt you as well. I don't know what yours are, but that's one of mine. What's a lesson here with Peter? Jesus turns frightened sinners into faithful servants. Last week I said, don't let others' hypocrisy, other people who are hypocrites, I said last week, don't let those people keep you out of the kingdom. Well, this morning I'll go one step farther and say, don't let your sin, don't let your unbelief, don't let your no, your away from me, your no, don't let that keep you out of the kingdom either. Jesus is fighting so people can be in the kingdom now. Jesus wants people in his kingdom. He opposes whatever's against that. It's instinctive to say, stay away from me. Give me some room. I, I'm, no, you, we, we got a boundary. Like with each other, we're like, no, that's, that's not. But with God, he's coming close. And it makes us uncomfortable. It makes us afraid. It's natural to have the reaction. But Jesus is the friend of sinners. He turns sinners into servants. Just give them time said a few weeks ago about a friend of mine who's a counselor, and he, he sees these brain scans as part of his training to be a counselor. And the part of the brain that activates when we're terrified is the same part of the brain that activates when we're amazed. There's something about those two kinds of experiences, sheer terror, grizzly bear in Alaska, or unbelievable delight, which for some of you is like a roller coaster that goes over that super drop, or it's the sunrise, or whatever. The parts of our brain are the same that go, wow, this is amazing. Jesus knows what those are. And he gets these fishermen in that place where they're amazed and they're afraid. And Jesus knows just what to say. Do not fear. 
He's reaching toward Peter as Peter's pushing him away. And Jesus says, I've redirected your life. You're going to be doing something new. You're worried about your sin, but I see your potential. One thing I offer just as a reflection, not a strategy, not a guaranteed thing, but something to reflect on is, do you think that God could amaze people into the kingdom? Do you think that the work that God can do to amaze people could bring them into the kingdom, could help them move toward following Jesus? I think we have a pretty hardened society today. We talk to people who think there's no need for Jesus or no need for church. They're just kind of like, whatever, I, I don't really need that. Or they're just kind of apathetic. They're like, I don't, I don't care. My life's good. What, you know, I, don't, I don't really need anything. I talk to people, they don't want God or they don't understand God. They, they find something more amazing elsewhere. But I wonder, what if God started amazing people so that they could join his kingdom? What if they started sensing, wow, he can do things I had no idea. This is amazing. And I'm not talking about entertainment or Christian gimmicks. There's a book by a guy named Neil Postman. He he says uh, that we can amuse ourselves to death. I'm not talking about entertainment and just being amused, some kind of gimmick. I'm saying that Jesus created committed followers by amazing them. He saw potential in them. They were tired. They were dejected. He saw potential in them. And he said, I see that you've failed at what you do best, but I still have potential for you. I still have power for you. And he chose right then to amaze them. And maybe this relates to you or maybe it relates to people around you. But at that moment where everything seemed so bad, Jesus didn't give them an intellectually rigorous, academically tested, board certified schematic of apologetics to say, here's why you can trust the original authors of scripture, or here's why you can reason your way into believing that God actually exists, or here's why Jesus must be the Messiah. Although all of those things are true, and I think apologetics is very, very useful in certain situations. But at a moment like this, Jesus knew we don't really need a highly structured intellectual argument to be sort of presented I need to amaze you with the fact that I'm paying attention to you and I'm powerful and I care about you. I can't see a way to turn amazement into an evangelistic strategy, you know? Like this Tuesday when you share with people, amaze them. And then on Thursday, invite them over for dinner. And then on Saturday, you know, if they work Saturday hours, go to their job and do something amazing. We can't manufacture amazement. But I do see a Christ who amazed people. And sometimes I think what we hope for is like, let me make you face your sin, and then later I'll amaze you. And Jesus flipped that around. He's like, let me amaze you. And then Peter, authentically on his knees, is like, I'm a sinner. He's amazed by God. Jesus didn't try to like get him to talk about how bad a person he was and then say, now I've got a really good life for you. Thanks for groveling, you know? Jesus complicated the narrative. He made life amazing now for Peter, and he said, I'll make life amazing later. And there is recognition of sin, and that's part of what seemed off with the crowds. He's doing all these great things, but they don't seem to get closer to him. He was a wonder worker for them, but they wouldn't become a faithful worker for him. I'll close here for a simple reason. Um, It's just It's a natural place to fix our eyes on Jesus as this comes to a close. And whatever you think about amazement and evangelism and being amazed by God's greatness and moving toward him and following him, I just want you to realize this. I just want us to end by focusing on Jesus, that that we have a Jesus, that we know a God who says, I'll build a connection with Peter 
at the worst moment in his life. Peter's isolating himself. He's saying, away from me, Lord. Like he's literally withdrawing from relationship. He's withdrawing from the best life possible, that of obeying Jesus. He's pushing himself away from it. And Jesus says, I'm going to maintain emotional connection with you. I'm going to maintain the conversation with you. I'm going to keep talking with you. I'm going to keep knowing you. And Peter's like, this is just, just away. I just want space. And I think Jesus just knows how to reach out and to keep stepping toward him. Jesus wanted to radically change Peter's mindset. He wanted to correct Peter's view of himself. He wanted to correct how Peter saw his identity. Peter says, I'm a sinful man, which is not totally wrong, and it's not totally right. He'd already been following Jesus, but Jesus knew the work he was going to do in Peter's life. The sinful man would become the saved man. The sinful man would become a servant man. The sinful man would become a shepherd. Peter later wrote another book in the Bible, and he says, we are under shepherds, and Christ is the chief shepherd. So look how different that is. Peter's saying, away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And all this time later, years later, he says, I'm an under-shepherd, and Christ is the chief chief shepherd. The only thing that Peter and Jesus could agree on in verse 8 is the one word they both said, which is Lord. For all that Peter thought about himself and for all the different views that Jesus had of Peter, the one thing they had in common was they said Lord right in the middle of it. They disagreed about the details of Peter's life and his purpose and his identity and his future, but what they agreed about, Jesus was Lord, made all the difference. That's why Jesus says, do not fear. He keeps the connection, and then he builds the conviction in Peter's heart. And his method with Peter is the same with all of us. He speaks to our heart, the core of our life. Don't fear. From now on, you will And he leads us on into something else. He connects with us, our strongest felt need, whatever it is. And out of that, Peter can leave it all and follow Christ. Whatever's bringing out your no, whatever's bringing up your fear, let Jesus speak there. And over time, you'll become a friend who can accept his disruptive leadership. You can have a hand in his mission. You can leave your life behind and follow him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the chief shepherd. It's what somehow makes all the pieces of our life work. It's that you are seated at the right hand of God, always living to pray for us, and you sent your spirit to help us. You're taking care of us, you're working, you're leading, you're guiding. And in all of our own lives, in some way, shape, or form, you are giving us attention You are coming to us in the midst of our ordinary life, and you're ready to say something. It's going to be disruptive. Help us remember that we can trust you. It's going to bring up our fears. It's going to stress us out. But it's part of recognizing that you're here and that you're with us. You know what our no's are, and would you work in us so that you help us to say yes. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As you go today... As our time in worship comes to a close, may the Father of mercies change your mindset and mine also. May he change those for you just like he did for Peter. Too often we focus on our sin, we focus on our fear, we focus on both, and we push God away even though he's coming to us and inviting us into new life. May you believe his perspective, not your own. May the Lord break through to your heart, securely inviting you telling you about your future, your next role, your next steps as you obey him. Thank you for coming today to worship. Have a great Sunday.